Hello, and welcome to Carefully Taught, teaching musical theater with Maddie and Kiko. A podcast to discuss musical theater pedagogy and to create a community of sharing amongst musical theater educators. Feel free to email us at carefullytaughtpodcast at gmail.com or follow us on Instagram at carefullytaughtpodcast. Today's guest is Amanda Flynn, and as she describes herself on her website, she is a performer turned vocal technician who loves helping people achieve vocal success. Amanda is currently on the musical theater voice faculty at Pace University. She performed in two Broadway shows, and her first book, So You Want to Sing Musical Theater, Revised and Expanded Edition, is about to be released. It will be available everywhere on June 15th. So exciting. So exciting. And she also works as a vocal coach and consultant for Broadway shows like The Lightning Thief and Be More Chill and off-Broadway shows like The Lightning Thief and films like Encanto, which we sing through Memory at My House and uh, One Year Off and Bo. And she works with theater companies in the New York City area like Two River Theater, Theater Works USA, and iTheatrics. Welcome, Amanda. We are going to get to all of it, but we wanted to start with your sweet family. How are you? How is Rob? How has life with the new new baby been? Uh, hi, thanks for having me. Um, things are good. I mean, uh, having a new baby is a real mind warp <laughs> because, um, you know, you just have this uh, little creature who just kind of looks at you. You know, we're in this sort of unrewarding phase, if you will, <laughs> not really interacting yet, not really responding, just sort of looking at you and um, expecting to be fed. <laughs> uh, so things are good though. Um, we're, we are um, adjusting. We have a happy, healthy baby. So no, no complaints there. So things are good. Amazing. And this is the question, you know, you're asked when you're a new parent is, are you sleeping? Is the baby sleeping? How, how does that work? I, I've, I am not a parent myself, but I've heard other parents ask parents that question. You know, surprisingly, I, I am actually very impressed with the amount of sleep that we're getting most nights. It's very disjointed, which I think is the thing that's so exhausting about it, is that you'll sleep for two hours, lucky if it's three or four, then you're up a bunch. But because my husband and I are, have both like taken a couple of weeks off of work, we don't really have to wake up in the morning. <laughs> so we tend to, you know, she tends to feed around six and then goes back down at seven. And so we go back to bed and sleep till 10. And so that, that has been very helpful in helping us stay functional because we are getting, you know, <laughs> some amount of sleep. But um, yeah, the, the sleep thing is definitely, definitely an adjustment, but it's manageable. <laughs> Amazing. So we usually start with guests, uh, you know, and their origin story. We would love to hear how you got here, right? I mean, um, you've had so many lives as a performer, as a vocal coach, as an educator. Um, give us just a little bit of, of how you got to where you are. Sure. Um, so I'm from Texas originally. I'm from Tyler, Texas, which is a town in East Texas, about an hour and a half southeast of Dallas. Um, and, um, you know, I grew up like, like most people that, that end up here, you know, dance class and theater and piano lessons and singing and choir and, you know, all the things that, that we do. Um, and, you know, I went to school uh, actually for classical voice. Um, you know, it was the 90s. Um, and so <laughs> there were like, you know, 10 musical theater programs. And I only knew of one, NYU. I was like, NYU, that's in New York. I'll go audition for NYU. And so I went and auditioned for NYU, very much was rejected. Um, so ended up going to school at Baylor University, which is a private school in Texas, um, 
that my whole family went to. It's like my grandfather went there, my mom met my dad there, my aunt met her husband, you know, everybody went there, right? So ended up going there. They actually have a great school of music. Um, so um, went there and was very unhappy because I was doing classical voice. It was not what I wanted to do. I knew I did not want to be an opera singer. It just sort of was, I got a scholarship and did it and kind of flitted around between like different emphasis, you know, and, and like a BA and then a BM and, you know, et cetera, because I just was looking for the right fit. Um, and so ultimately I ended up dropping out of college and moving to New York City. I told my parents, I said, you know, I want to go do this summer program at CAP 21, back when they had this the six-week summer program. Um, and I'm going to go and I'm going to do this and I'm going to see, see how it goes. And if I feel like I can hang, I want to stay in New York City and move and not go back to school. If I feel like I can't hang, if I feel like my skills are not where they need to be, I will come home and finish school and then go to New York after school. My parents said, sounds very reasonable. So I went to New York, did the summer program, um, found an apartment, came home for a week, packed up boxes of my stuff and moved into an apartment. Um, and then I booked a tour right away. So um, then packed everything up and went on tour. Um, but that was sort of the start of, of me um, was sort of, um, you know, coming and coming to New York with a dream to be a performer and be on Broadway. And, you know, I was very lucky to um, find success right away and, and start working and go on tour and work regionally and then, you know, do a couple of Broadway shows. Um, when I was doing Wicked um, in Los Angeles, I started having problems with my voice. Um, all of a sudden I was like losing my voice all the time and it was really weird and I, I couldn't figure it out. and. You know, I was like, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm a good singer. I've trained a lot and, you know, I know what I'm doing and, and I don't know why my voice isn't functioning and why it's not working. And it was this, this real, this real, really hard thing. Um, and what was made even harder was the pushback that I got from the company about like, you know, well, if you had better technique, you'd be able to get through this. Um, if you kind of, if you knew more about, about what you were doing and how to operate, you know, this would be more successful. Um, you know, there was a lot of blame on me um, for sort of like not, you know, not pulling my weight or not being good enough, right? This, so that was very hard. I, I had a lot of shame. Um, I, I felt so embarrassed that like I couldn't do my job and was having all these problems. And um, so I, I eventually left the show because I had been on the West Coast at that point for a couple of years because I was doing the show in LA. I came back to New York because I was just ready to be back in New York and got in with a voice team here in New York and they immediately diagnosed me with what was going on. I have asthma and my asthma medicines were causing um, causing a little bit of an infection in my throat that no doctor in LA had caught and they immediately gave me medicine. My voice came back within a week and I was like, well, that was the easiest thing in the world. And I thought, wow, this was such a traumatic experience for me. Like I felt so shamed and stigmatized about having these issues with my voice. Um, and so that sort of sparked an interest for me in the voice on a deeper level. Um, so I started, you know, just doing my own research and reading. I started teaching voice a little bit, just kind of like dabbling in some things here and there. Um, and, you know, kept auditioning and performing, but then sort of hit a point in my performing career. I was kind of in that late 20s, early 30s sort of like bridge where I remember I had one day where I had an appointment in the morning for Sharpay and High School Musical and in the afternoon had an appointment for Ellen and Miss Saigon. And I was like, I think the people are confused. 
<laughs> because nobody knows what to do with me because I'm I'm sort of in this like not quite old enough but not young enough still. And so that was when I was like, I think I want to go to grad school because I love teaching and I if I'm going to stay in this industry and continue to perform, I need a parallel career that fulfills me, that is sustainable. Um, you know, I, I am not loving the survival jobs that I do. And so I went and finished my undergrad at the new school and then went to NYU, did my master's and my advanced certificate. Um, and then when I graduated, I started teaching and here we are. <laughs> I always say I'm accidentally retired from performing, <laughs> uh, which happens to many of us, I think. <laughs> That's amazing, and there's so much to unpack with that story. One of the things that I appreciate is your search during your undergraduate experience. I think so many of our students feel like they need to know the answer, and they're pushed to get their degree right out of high school, even though they don't quite know what they want to do. And I think that there's such a, there's an incredible value to hear somebody who has had a, a distinguished career and is working and doing stuff that they love and you dropped out of college because at the time it wasn't the right fit for you. Um, I think that that's wonderful. And I also, I think that there's something, I've heard other people tell this, a similar story about the shame surrounding uh, vocal injuries or vocal challenges, you know, when, I don't wanna say this too loud because my Yankees are on fire right now, but like if Aaron Judge, you know, uh, uh, strains a muscle in his arm and needs to take a couple of weeks off and goes on the injured uh, reserve list. Nobody shames him for that, right? But there's something so personal about our voice that, and, and, and there, there is this stigma attached to a vocal injury like, oh, if you have any sort of issues, you must be doing something wrong, shame on you. And I, I love that you've now made it your mission to to serve and, 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 and help others through that experience. Um, so thank you for that. So um, just to like comment on that, it's, it's very much a real thing, you know, that um, when an, a professional athlete gets hurt, you know, we commend them for how hard they play, <laughs> you know? And honestly, even if a dancer in a Broadway show sprains their ankle, we don't shame them for it. We're like, okay, let's get you into PT. We'll be back in the show, you know, it's like, you know, we, that is something that, the, that we consider to be normal. But if a singer has a vocal cold hemorrhage, all of a sudden it's all of this shame. And, you know, I think, I think a lot of it has to do with the fact that voice medicine is really essentially a very new field, if you think about it. Like the way that we can see the vocal folds now, tw even 20 years ago, we couldn't see the vocal folds as well, much less 30 or 40 years ago, right? So, so it was, if we look back at what, you know, voice doctors were doing in the 80s and 90s, it feels very primitive <laughs> compared to what we do now because of how well we can see the vocal folds. And so, you know, I think there has always been this shroud of mystery around the voice. Um, and because it is part of how we communicate as humans and part of our personality and who we are as people, you know, people get very protective over it. And so it just sort of feeds into this feeds into this sort of pseudoscience of, you know, take this and this shot will help and this tea and, you know, as opposed to just treating it like we would treat you, you sprained, you sprained this muscle, you need to put ice on it, take ibuprofen, rest, you'll be back in your show in three weeks, right? Um, you know, and so voice medicine is starting to turn the corner or has very much turned the corner and is that type of medicine. Um, but, but yeah, it, we still have, unfortunately, that lingering baggage that we've had of just like, oh, it's a mystery. No one really knows what's going on. You need to rest and drink a tea and, 
but yeah, you know, my brother played in the NFL for like 10 years and, you know, he had constant tendonitis because he was a quarterback. He threw the football all the time. So like, you know, that just came with the territory. There was no judgment about, about it. You know, it was what it is. It is what it is. You, you kind of carry that in the same way that, you know, singers carry fatigue, dancers carry fatigue, et cetera. Anyway, that's all I'll say about that. <laughs> with this in mind, um, you know, you are educating. I think everything about you is an educator. Uh, I've, I met you during JTF times in uh, Atlanta. So I've seen you work with young people. I know that you work with students at Pace. You also coach uh, Broadway uh, performers, etc. I'm sort of drawing that line to say, do you see, um, do you see the industry shifting? Um, you know, Maybe that's just sort of an open question to like, what are your thoughts on like how the world is moving, how the world is shifting and how you have to adjust as an educator? Yeah, this this idea and more. I mean, it's it's because I know that this is like really the crux of this and 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 we are learning better. We are uh, we are seeing improvements in this area. Um how has that changed how you've had to teach students to do the thing eight times a week? Yeah, you know, I think I think that the industry is starting to change, luckily. Um, I think that, you know, we people are starting to recognize that voice injuries um, are injuries, just like any other injury, and that there's a there's a treatment plan for all injuries. Um, you know, there are still plenty of doctors out there that aren't quite at the forefront of treatment of these things. Um, and, you know, they still kind of live in the pseudoscience world. And so that that kind of continues to drag everything back, unfortunately. But, but for the most part, everything is moving forward. But, you know, I really think that what we do at the university level is crucial to changing the industry beyond just voice injury, right, of everything. Um, but in terms of really teaching students about their vocal health, teaching them about vocal injuries, um, you know, I did a, a, a research study a couple years ago and published a paper in Journal of Voice looking at vocal health in undergraduate performing arts programs. And, you know, most, most students learned like, I should drink water it's good for my voice but so few learned anything like if i have a vocal fold hemorrhage here's the course of treatment right so there was no real understanding of anything beyond just like very basic uh, vocal health um, and i think that that is how we change the industry is that we send these vocal health warriors out um, who understand things about their voice they know what type of doctor to seek out if they have a problem they know how to talk about their voice in clear language. Um, they're able to describe what's going on, to describe changes in their voice. They don't panic when they're given a diagnosis. They understand you know, what a, a, a rational course of treatment might be. Um, and so that to me is how we really start to change the industry because we put these performers out who, um, who are able to um, advocate for themselves. Um, as, as singers and say, hey, this is, you know, this is what I need um, and understand how to build their team because that's the thing we don't see when we go see a Broadway show is we don't see the team of people behind these performers keeping them functioning. The laryngologist, the voice therapist, the manual therapist, the voice teacher, right, the mental health therapist, right, all the people that are keeping these performers running and so learning how to build that team I think is, is really important. 
so in a in a dream world, um, we would have those same sizable teams at all of the different BFA musical theater programs in the country and voice programs in the country. When when Matt, your brother, was at LSU, uh, you know, he had uh, he was at a program with millions and millions of in doll, uh, of dollars in uh, endowments and, and support. You know, there are we don't I, I don't have anything like that at my musical theater program. I can't imagine that Kika does, too. So like without the ability for us to have the funding to hire these musical vo voiceologists, uh, these these uh, these specialists, what do we do? I think I think the first thing is that we have people have to reach out to their communities. Um, reach out to the, the you know if we're talking about building a medical team, you know I always encourage people reach out to the the EMTs in your area or within an hour drive or two hours drive or the nearest big city, right? Find out if anyone any of those EMTs, right? Because the EMT is a, a you know a, a generalist, right? They learn about ear, nose, and throat, but they don't have a lot of voice training, right? They're sort of trained to look for cancer and blocked airway and other minor things, but they're not really trained, nor do they have the equipment to look at the vocal folds and be like, there's a tiny little thing here that's causing that C5 to feel funny, right? You know, and they just don't have the equipment for it because they don't need it, right? Why would you need that equipment? So, you know, finding out if there's any ENTs in your area that, um, that have an interest in the voice, that have have taken any voice workshops or training mention that you're looking for looking to build a partnership with your theater program or your musical theater program or your voice program you know is this something that might interest them because you might not find someone who is like you know the world-renowned laryngologist but you might find someone that is able to work with your students be able to you know honestly what you really need is someone that's able to say i think there's something going on here I need to refer you to this person, right? Which is not going to be every student. It's going to be the one and out of every 30, there we go. Something might be going on here. I'm going to refer you to this person in this bigger city. Let's get you taken care of. Um, you know, also reaching out to SLPs, the speech language pathologists. Again, they have a generalist training, right? Don't do a ton of voice. But when you find the people that have done their fellowship in voice, just like the ENTs will do their fellowship in voice, if that's going to be their primary field, um, reaching out into your community, finding people, you never know when you're going to find someone who's like, oh, I love the voice. My undergrad is in voice. I just don't ever get to work with any voice clients. Let's build a partnership. So I'm always encouraging people to reach out in your communities because you just never know what's there that you just, if you don't dig around and start asking questions, take a meeting with, a, with an ENT and be like, look, I'm trying to build this. How can, how can you help? Um, and they may or may not be interested. So, so that's the first thing I say. And then the second thing I'll say is that um, the world is our oyster these days with Zoom. <laughs> um, not that we can necessarily um, get somebody scoped over Zoom, um, but you know, in, in there is a world where you could get a second opinion if you already have a stroboscopic exam from a doctor, right? You there is a world where you could get an appointment with you know a laryngologist who is you know um, you know very experienced and perhaps have them look at the exam and do a second opinion. Um, you could meet with a voice therapist in another community and do voice therapy on Zoom. Um, you know, so I think that it's, you know, we have to sort of reach out and try to build build those bridges. It's a little bit of a Pollyanna attitude because I recognize that, you know, the smaller the community, the less likely there is to be somebody. Um, but if you just look to your nearest big city, more than likely there's a laryngologist there. And so that can be somebody that you can go to and say, hey, I'm in this community, can you recommend somebody? Um, so that would be my advice is to try to reach out and, and build these partnerships because 
the more we can help our students when they come to us and say, I think something's wrong with my voice. If we can say, here's a list of people to reach out to, you know, it's, it's, it's valuable. It helps. That's really great. Um, can you talk a bit about being a vocal coach and consultant for these big, you know, Broadway shows, off-Broadway shows? What exactly do you do? Um, and, and how does your work uh, help the show and, and push the, fo- the show forward? Uh, you know, um, working on shows is um, one of my favorite things. Um, and it feels very much like my mission <laughs> to decatastrophize these vocal injuries and to provide resources. So in 2019, I worked on both of the shows back to back. And it was such a joy because I was like, this is it. This was what I wanted to do when I had trouble with my voice and there were no resources provided to me. This was my mission was to become the resource. And here I am. Yay. Um, and so so my work in, in both of the shows was um, that I um, worked with the entire cast um, in Be More Chill. Everyone in the show got me an hour a week, just like they would get physical therapy. Um, not everybody used it or used it every week, but they had that available. So, you know, for some people, um, we would do a warm up once a week, warm up before the show. Um, some people, we would just have like a regular old voice lesson and work on other rep you know, just to like keep people balanced vocally by, you know, stretching their voice in other ways. Um, You know, we did have a vocal injury. George Salazar hemorrhaged his vocal fold um, on the second preview, uh, which he talks about very openly. And he talks about very openly in the book. He wrote the foreword in my book. Um, And so that was an all hands on deck situation. Um, And so um, I was like, this is the moment I have been preparing my entire life for. This is why I read so many books, because this is what I'm preparing for. Um, And so, you know, we got him in, we got him out of the show because a hemorrhage is an acute injury, um, which really just means you have to rest um, and just let the blood be absorbed back into your body. It's a bruise, right? So it's like, you know, bump your bump your thigh on a piece of furniture and you keep bumping it every day on that piece of furniture it never heals but if you stop doing it the blood gets reabsorbed the bruise heals that's what a hemorrhage is very minor injury but it's enough that it just kind of derails you for a second and so he had to be out of the show um and i will tell you that it is a very scary thing to have to go back into a show that injured you um and so that was really tough um, you know, getting George back into the show. And George is one of the most brilliant people that I've ever worked with. Um, just, I mean, just the most lovely, wonderful human, but he's also um, so smart. I've truly never worked with somebody who was able to like implement vocal notes and vocal changes as fast as he was, right? We would be in the hmm. studio and I'd be like, let's look at these things. And they would go into the show that night. Like, let's change your onset here. Let's think about how you say this line. Let's, you know, and let's think about your posture. And it would all be in the show that night, Um, which I was like, wow, he's really, most people can't do that. (laughs) Most people would be like, oh, I forgot about that. Or I forgot about this. But, you know, this was a a situation where George was like, I have to get back in the show. And so he took everything I I suggested to him and implemented it right away. Um, And yeah, you know, we got, we got really lucky because the, you know, sometimes with, um, with a hemorrhage, right? It's essentially a blood vessel that bursts um, and the blood vessel can be irritated for any reason, right? Your illness, coughing, fatigue, allergies, any of those things will, will irritate those blood vessels. 
um, which was why we're a little more prone to having a hemorrhage when we're when we're not 100% healthy or we're super tired. So it makes sense that this would happen in your second preview, right? Coming right out of tech. Um, and um, uh, the um, when the hemorrhage, when it's reabsorbed, sometimes you're left with a blood vessel that hasn't quite fully healed and you need to go in and kind of zap it so that it doesn't leak again. But we got, we got lucky because um, George healed beautifully and we didn't have to do that. And so we got him back in the show. And, um, you know, so, so that was something that I did with Be More Chill was sort of navigate and sort of be the middleman between the doctors and the producers and George and the producers and sort of, you know, help everybody navigate this, um, you know, this, this injury and get him back in the show as fast as we could, which we, which we did. Um, and so, yeah, so, so that is kind of what I did. You know, I, I always think about how, you know, like you were talking about Maddie, about like, you know, my brother at LSU. And then when you play for the Packers, I mean, bajillions of dollars are, you know, there for right. them to be like, you know, this thing, oh, my elbow hurts. And there's like 40 people there to like fix it. Right. Um, and we just don't have those resources in musical theater programs. You know, if we could take some money from the football team um, and we don't have uh, those um, resources on Broadway. Right. Um, and so, um, you know, physical therapy is something that has been provided um, since about the early 90s. Um, and so, you know, I'm a big push to have voice services also provided as a preventative measure, because if you've got someone there that's, you know, we, we've learned that if we give people physical therapy every week, it prevents, helps prevent injuries. So why would either paying for people's individual voice lessons weekly or providing a voice coach on the show can also help prevent injuries, right? So like, you know, with the shows, like particularly with, I remember um, there was an actor that got really sick during Lightning Thief, right? But she didn't want to miss any shows. And, you know, I was there to kind of like warm her up and assess, can you do the show? Can you sing your show? Should you be out? Should you go, go in, you know? And so ultimately we decided, yes, you can do the show. Um, but sometimes we decide, no, you shouldn't do the show, you should rest, right? And so, um, you know, just helping to navigate those conversations, I think, is a valuable thing. Um, how is it possible for you to be coaching a more than one show at a time? Or is it is it a full time job when you're doing a show like Be More Chill and you're you're literally meeting with people for an hour every week? What like what what's what's possible? Um, that's a great question. Um, and uh, <laughs> my husband would say, no, you should never do more than one show at, at a time. But me, I'm always like, I can I know you could probably navigate it. Um, you know, it kind of just depends. With Be More Chill, um, I you know it kind of depends on the contract, right? So like with Be More Chill, um, everyone had access to me an hour a week, right? Now obviously that kind of flew out the window with the injury because it became doctor's appointments and, you know, this and then this and this. But, you know, it was also a little, you know, it's, it's a little bit of a blurred line because George is also a really good friend of mine. So it was a little like, I'm going to go with you to the doctor. <laughs> you know, also you're my friend. And so like, I want to help you through this, right? Mm -hmm. um, and then when I worked on uh, Lightning Thief, I had like a weekly retainer salary, right? And so there was a, you know, we had come up with, here's what is included in that. And should something else happen, we'll negotiate beyond that, right? Like, so we didn't have any injuries on Lightning Thief. So there was no need for all of the, like, all hands on deck going to doctor's office three times a week, et cetera. Um, but, you know, I think it is realistic to work on more than one show at once. It's just a matter of, again, contractually what what you're doing. Um, some, some shows have um, voice coaches just for the leads, right? Like Phantom of the Opera, um, School of Rock had one for the kids, and then also had one just for Dewey. Um, you know, so sometimes we see shows that will 
do it for their, just their, their leads. Um, or they might hire a voice teacher that they send their leads to um, that's not necessarily a coach on the show, but, but is the person that they send people to. Um, and so, you know, that is, you know, a little bit of a different thing in that it's not quite as immersed into the world of the show. Um, it's sort of an outside resource that the show has, you know, contracted. You know, I sort of did that for Beetlejuice a, a couple months back. Someone in the show needed some help and they reached out and sent the actor to me and we worked and then I sent them back, right? And so like, that's a little different because I'm not really, I'm not really in the theater talking to the producers, you know, talking to the creative team, et cetera. Um, but, you know, I think it is realistic to work on more than one show. It just kind of, it kind of depends. Um, but that's also one of the reasons that I hired an associate teacher in my private voice studio was for that exact reason. Cause I was like, if I ever have to do more than one show at once, I have to have help. <laughs> mm-hmm. That is so great. Um, so can you talk a bit, I know you were on maternity leave, right? But, but you are still on faculty at Pace. Um, can you talk about that relationship um, and then how that works with your private studio as well? Are you able to just balance all of those students? Um, I, I love the students at Pace so much uh, for many reasons, but I mainly because they're just right there, right in the middle of New York. Like they can go to auditions during the day and do a million things. So, um, or are literally in Broadway shows while they are uh, going to school. So can you just talk a little bit about that dynamic? Yeah, you know, I think um, I do balance everything <laughs> very delicately. And now I have a, a baby, so we'll see how that goes once I go back to school in the fall. Um, but, um, uh, you know, I love teaching um, college and I love my private studio. And I find that they have such a great symbiotic relationship with each other um, because there's a lot about the structure of college, right? Because with my college students, you know, we have practice journals and we have assignments and, you know, we have college stuff. It's college, right? You should, you should write things down, right? You're in college. Um, <laughs> um, and, and that sort of structure, I find, really helps inform in my private studio when I'm working with someone who, where we're not following that structure, right? They're coming to me and they're in a show or auditioning or in the world of auditioning. Um, and they, you know, I find that the things that I learn from that structure really help. But then I also find that the things that I learn from sort of the free form of people just coming in being like, I need to work on this thing. Okay, let's work on it, right? That also really helps with my, with my college students because it helps me sort of stay, um, stay up with, you know, fixing things quickly, right? Troubleshooting technique quickly. Um, because oftentimes in college, it's the long game, right? Is it's that we don't always need to fix things immediately because we're building, you know, foundations. And sometimes things get fixed really quickly, but sometimes things take longer and it's okay. We have four years and you're 18 years old and, you know, your muscles are still developing and growing. And it's okay if it takes us a couple semesters for this skill to build, right? And then in the private studio, sometimes we have to work a little faster and come up with faster um uh, fast, faster solutions. Um, and so I find that those things really, really help each other. And not to mention being in New York where you're right, we're right in the thick of it. So um, everything that's coming up, the workshops that are happening, everyone's auditioning for those things. And so, you know, we're, we stay right up on things that are coming down the pike because, you know, my clients are coming in and auditioning for those things. Um, you know, I think at Pace, I think we do I think we do a good job of being a New York City school, meaning 
it's really hard to bring students to New York City and then go, and by the way, you cannot audition for anything. Don't you even dare. <laughs> Don't you even dare go to a professional audition. And if you book a Broadway show, you're out of school, <laughs> right? And, and that is what a lot of New York City programs do, right? It's sort of like you're either in school or you're not. And while I do agree with that, right, like, you know, don't be missing class to go on an audition, right? But, you know, if you book something huge, we're going to do what we can do to, to help you do that. Because isn't that what we're training you for? And why would, you, why would we take away that opportunity for you to do a Broadway show or to do a new show out of town that's about to transfer to Broadway? You know, uh, uh, in fall of 2019, we had a student um, who did Almost Famous at the Old Globe. And the contract went until early October. And so, you know, we were like, yes, go do Almost Famous. And we'll just let you have online school <laughs> you know it's just pre-pandemic so this was like a novel thing but we were like we'll just let you you know facetime in to your classes and then make stuff up when you come back like you know of course we're not going to miss that opportunity you know now it's going to broadway and she's still attached and so you know it's like why would we take those opportunities away but it is something you have to balance because it is true if you are coming here to go to school you have to be in class right you gotta be in class and when you're doing a scene with someone else, they're relying on you now, right? Theater is a community sport. So, you know, you have to be there. You have to pull your weight. You have to do your work. You cannot just come here and audition, you know, willy-nilly and never go to class, right? So, uh, but, you know, we, we try really hard to provide opportunities for our students. You know, we we typically have, you know, Dear Van Hansen comes and auditions are on our campus. Um, you know, they've hired, you know, a few of our students. Um, you know, we, we try to create these opportunities as best we can. Um, I think it helps prepare our, our students so that when they graduate, it's less of a learning curve, um, which is also just part of going to school in New York City in general, because you're already in New York City. <laughs> so when you graduate, you know, no matter what school you go to, you graduate and you're already in your apartment, you know the subway, you know the city. And so that learning curve is gone. But, you know, I will say going to college in New York City is not for everybody. And so it is very, very, very important that students look at that because it can be really overwhelming. And it happens to some of our students, you know, because Broadway is your weekend activity. You know, you go see Broadway shows all the time, which for some students is so inspiring and lights a fire under their butt. And for some students, it is overwhelming and they compare themselves and all they think about is how they're not ready. And they think poorly of themselves because they're watching these performers all the time. And so, you know, it's it's not for everybody, for sure. I'm curious, um, you know, something that Kiko and I have talked a little bit on the podcast is how much we ask of today's musical theater performers and our students as we are preparing them for the industry. And and I think one of the one of the areas that I have seen this in addition to, you know, uh, Kiko always likes to say, you know, it's this, this, this and circus acts. Um, I also feel like scores are being written in a way like I was a tenor when I went to CCM in the in the mid 90s and late 90s. And I can't sing the tenor part that's written for Drowsy Chaperone and the B flats and whatnot. So like it, are we contributing to vocal injuries by the musical theater that by what we're asking from our from the young people and and with the with the scores that are being uh, created today? You know, I'm I'm going to say yes, but it's for me it's not the scores. Um, and so this is what I'll say is that we have to remember that we all sing what we grow up listening to. 
So like I grew up listening to Miss Saigon, right? And cats, right? You know, and Les Mis, right? And so I was belting B's and C's because that was what was popular. But kids these days grow up singing along to Ariana Grande, right? And singing Mean Girls and, you know, Wicked. Like my, my client who's playing Elphaba on Broadway right now, she's like, I saw Wicked when it when I was nine years old. And, you know, I'm like, ooh, I was already auditioning in New York when that came out. Um, but, you know, it's also, I had a, had a student who said, my first musical that I saw was Wicked in LA. And look, you're in my playbill. I was like, oh, thank you. That's great that you were in elementary school. Um, but they grow up <laughs> singing to that stuff. That that type of sound quality is in their ear and is stuff that they play around with at a much younger age than we ever did. And so I, while I do agree that sometimes we get scores that are like utterly <laughs> unsustainable, um, p singers these days, younger generations are much more adept at it than, than hmm. we might think. Um, and I think that's why stuff gets written like that is because there's plenty of people who can sing it. So then the thing that I will say is the thing that is causing more, causing more vocal issues is capitalism, <laughs> is the show must go on, is the eight times a week, 10 times a week, the week of Thanksgiving, the rehearsal during the day, the show at night, that is causing more problems than having to belt an F, right? It's the having to do it more than they should and not being given the time off that they need um, because they're tired or because they're sick, but being pressured by producers to go on. And that to me, that's the real crux of it. <laughs> Capitalism, not necessarily any sort of specific score. Now, that being said, not everybody can sing everything. Right, not everyone is built mm -hmm. to be an Alphaba or an Evan Hansen. It's just not the case. But most people that you know can sing Alphaba. It's really easy for them. What's hard is eight times a week, right? And context, mm -hmm. and that's where they have to build up stamina and learn how to pace themselves and learn when they need to take a day off, right? But it's not it's not necessarily the actual singing of the material that is that challenging for people mm -hmm. that are that are built for that. And every not everyone is, but for me, it's it's. It's the it's the crappy stuff about the industry that makes it that gives the people injures people physically and vocally. Oh yes, capitalism. Capitalism. It's so true, though. It is so true. I mean, that's part of the the conversation that we're having because it it isn't necessarily about um, it, you know it's about the human part. It's about how. As a human, our students are going to be entering into the into the industry, and then what spaces they need to hold for themselves, and you know how can we promote being a human to a to an industry that might be inhumane, right? At at points, mm -hmm. um, let's talk about the book. This is uh, very exciting. So you want to sing musical theater, um, revised and expanded edition. Can you talk about um, how it came about? Um, what what your process was and what people who are going to buy it on June 15th will expect. The So You Wanna Sing series is, uh, it's a 20 book series and it is published by Roman and Littlefield, but co-sponsored by Nats, the National Association of Teachers of Singing. Um, and uh, I think the first book came out in 2013 or 14 um, and they sort of started this series and there's a book about rock and roll, country, gospel, blues, jazz, 
um, and you know lots of different genres and Nats was basically like we want to create a series of books that's really like a deep dive into different genres of music so that people that really want to um, learn about these these genres have a resource and so the first book was a musical theater book um, and so once they hit 20 books the editor Matt Hoke um, he decided let's cap the series we have enough let's now go back and start doing second editions and so they reached out to me to sort of rewrite the book um, and for this second edition um, because they really wanted somebody who um, had real industry experience who was really you know in the industry but also an academic and sort of straddled these worlds um, and so I agreed to write the book uh, and got started um, I essentially you know initially we weren't sure how much of a rewrite it was going to be but it ended up being a total rewrite um, and um, so I added a bunch of a bunch of different, you know, chapters and perspectives. But, um, you know, the book is really geared for singers, you know, people who, you know, want to have a career in musical theater, or even if they, they don't want to have a career, but they, it's something that they do for fun. Um, and it's also really geared for teachers. Um, I kind of tried to straddle the world of making, you know, the book available, really accessible to singers and to teachers. Um, because a lot of voice teachers don't come from the musical theater world. They come from the classical world um, or other worlds and, um, you know, um, need to have more um, guidance on teaching musical theater and understanding, um, you know, the sounds that we make in musical theater, understanding, you know, different things stylistically and understanding how to teach those things. Um, and so I kind of tried to straddle, <laughs> straddle the world there and, um, you know, make it uh, an approachable book for both, you know, teachers and for singers. I tried to think like if I was in high school in Tyler, Texas, and I went to the Barnes and Noble <laughs> and bought a book about musical theater singing, what would I want to learn from it? Um, so I think that the book, um, you know, works really well um, as like a textbook in like a voice classroom or even a voice pedagogy classroom, but also just as a standalone resource, at least I hope. That's the, that's the plan. I'm curious, you know, one of the things about musical theater as a style is that it incorporates uh, elements from so many different styles. Um, I'm looking through the list here, you know, of the other So You Want to Sing books, and there's jazz and rock and roll and gospel and country, and musical theater oftentimes uses elements or even straight up stylistic uh, moments of jazz, rock and roll, country, and gospel, the first four that I'm, I'm looking here, and I'm curious, um, does your does your book touch on that or is it is it primarily focused on what we think of that musical theater sound it is very much focused on the flexibility of both function and genre um, in fact there's an entire chapter um, that i put in called musical genres and it is a deep dive into all the variety of musical genres that exist in musical theater um, for that exact reason, because people think of musical theater as being this one sound, jazz hands and, you know, trombones. Um, and, um, you know, I really wanted, uh, again, for, you know, perhaps a teacher, right, who comes from the classical world, who thinks of musical theater as that, right? Um, I really wanted them to understand that it is it is such a mosaic these days of 
all these different genres of music. And that if you don't really have a good grasp on musical genres, it's going to be really hard to be successful. Now, not everyone can sing every genre, right? Not everyone can do everything. But most musical theater performers have to be able to switch between different functions with their voice, right? As well as styles and genres and be able to sort of step into those as truthfully as they can. Um, and so there's a whole chapter talking about that. Um, for that exact reason. So I'm glad you asked that um, because that was really, really important to me because that's something I get kind of irritated by is when people are like, well, the musical theater, mu musical theater singing or musical theater style. And I'm like, I don't know what that means. <laughs> like, you know, mm -hmm. like singing carousel is totally different than singing Hades Town. So like, I don't like, you know, like th those are totally unrelated things. And so, you know, what are you talking about when you say the musical theater sound, right? Um, so yeah, so, so I do talk about that in the book. <laughs> I love it. You are, um, so awesome. This is, has been such a great opportunity to, to chat. Um, I have just a little bit of a personal question, which is about your relationship with a composer, with the amazing rubber Kiki, you know, you have, I'm just curious, this is just out of curiosity, what that is like, like you are on the inside scoop of what is new a new song a new something um how do you navigate that as a as a performer educator uh, artist yourself um you know it's it's i love being married to a composer <laughs> it's great there's a lot of music in our house um but you know it's it's it is wonderful being like the first person that gets to hear the song right um or hearing the like very rough version of the song right? Or the like bad version of the song before it becomes great, you know? Um, and my husband is always like, he, he can always tell <laughs> how I feel about, about something when he plays it for me. Um, and he'll always be like, you hate it. I'm like, don't hate it. This is a great first draft. <laughs> um, he just always knows when, uh, when, you know, and he's like, I know, I know it's, I know, I know it's a first draft. I'm working on it. I'm working on it. And I'm like, I know you are. I've been, we've been together 18 years. I trust me. I know. You're going to rewrite this but i think it's a good start um no it is it is very fun you know it's um it's it's just wonderful having someone that's in my industry you know even though we do different things um i couldn't imagine <laughs> having to have kind of the you know busy lifestyle um and sort of chaotic freelancer lifestyle that comes from college teaching and private studio and you know your schedule's just not ever set um, and, you know, same thing with him is it's like he has meetings and he has to have time to write and, you know, different things. And it's just like, you know, our schedules can be very chaotic. And so it is wonderful being in the same industry because we understand each other on a different on a different level than I think we would if we, you know, had boring old nine to fives. <laughs> I love it. I love it. I love it. Um, can you uh, you know, we're going to use this as a resource. We're going to be talking about your book. Uh, do you have any other resources that you'd like to share with our audiences or things that you want to recommend or highlight? Sure. Um, you know, I read a, a book recently. Um, I haven't finished it. I'm, I'm like about halfway through that I think is really good, particularly for college teachers. And it's a book called Teaching Race, and it is by Dr. Stephen Brookfield. Um, and it is one of the most hands-on tangible books about having these conversations, right? Um, with students at the undergraduate level and actual real resources for how to navigate these things in the classroom. Um, it's, it's edited by Dr. Brookfield um, and each chapter is written by, by a different, different person. 
Um, but, you know, I feel like when we're talking about these changes that we want to make in our industry and we're talking about implementing these changes at the college level, right? And, you know, sending our students out <laughs> ready to change change the industry. Um, you know, we, we sometimes get stuck in like metaphorical land, right? Not necessarily intangible. Here's what we're actually going to do. Um, and so I found this book to be a great resource recently um, as far as like being like, okay, this is how these people are navigating these tough conversations, particularly in predominantly white institutions which most theater programs are. Um, and uh, so that is the first thing that comes to mind as far as like something new that, that I have found to be really, really valuable. Um, yeah, is that, a good, is that a good recommendation? It's perfect. I wrote it down. I'm gonna order it or go try to find it as soon as we're done. Yeah. Um, this has been awesome. Tell us again when the book actually is released. It is released June 15th, but you can pre-order it on Amazon. So if you are an early bird and want to get there, you can go ahead and pre-order it and then they'll, they'll send it out. Um, but it comes out June 15th. Um, yeah, really excited about it. Well, congratulations. They're a book, a child <laughs> at the same time. I mean, I don't, I don't do you, you, I mean, I know we talked about sleep earlier, but I, you can't be sleeping if you're doing all of these things. Uh, it's a lot. Well, now, now that the book is written, we're golden. <laughs> so <laughs> it was writing it that, that, that took away some sleep. Yes. Catching up on all the sleep. Amanda, thank you so much for joining us. Um, we are excited to see you. We, we, I'm sure we'll ask you back in a future season. It was just great to have this opportunity to chat. Thank you so much. I appreciate it. The Maddie and Geek Out Podcast Show. The Maddie and Geek Out Show. The Maddie and Geek Out Podcast Show. Music for Carefully Taught was provided by Joshua Haig. For more information, visit joshuahaigmusic.com.